Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24. Well, I'm not sure what's going on with the screen this morning, but we'll, uh, we'll roll with it, whatever it does, so uh, we'll, we'll get it figured out. We'll be in Matthew 24, we'll fin- figure out the, uh, the end of this passage and then into chapter 25 this morning. What we're going to see today is that, uh, you know what, let's just, uh, we'll just kill the screen, let's do that. And I'll just try to be real clear and real verbal, all right? We'll try to do that. So we're going to look at Jesus is coming back, part two. Jesus is coming back, part two. What we're going to see today is this central idea that Jesus can come back anytime, so we should be ready all the time. Jesus' return can happen anytime, so be ready all the time. Matthew 24, verse 36, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, it begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, it was just a few weeks before Christmas, people woke up early in the morning, maybe grabbed a cup of coffee, began thinking about the holidays coming up, family, visiting, celebrating together. Perhaps a few were on their way to church that morning when they heard the sound of explosions. December 7th, 1941, a day that, as Franklin Roosevelt said, would live in infamy, and it does down to the present day. You see, on that day, uh, the people were surprised with an attack from Japan. Some 20 ships and 300 planes went down. More than 2,400 American uh, soldiers and civilians were killed, and another 1,000 injured. And on that day, life as we knew it in the 20th century was changed forever. And we sit here today somewhat as a result of everything that happened then. It changed not just that moment, but, but the decades that followed. And it was that moment, as everyone woke up that morning, they had no idea what was coming. You can imagine whether you're in Hawaii or in Washington, D.C., you have no concept of how that moment will change the rest of your life. It's a surprise that you can't anticipate. Well, in much the same way, Jesus teaches that one day we will wake up and realize that Jesus has returned. And that day will change not just decades, or world history, but the history of eternity and everything that will follow. Jesus is coming back, and his return will catch people off guard. 
The first thing we see here in these verses is that Jesus' return is an imminent return. It's an imminent return. The point is that no one knows when he's coming back, so we should always be ready. Now, Jesus has been teaching on two major historical events. The first is, in the year AD 70, Jerusalem will be destroyed. He also teaches about the return of Christ at the end of all things, when he's going to come back, conquer all his enemies, and set all things right. Well, now he looks at, since Jesus is coming back, what are our responsibilities in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back? What should we do? Who should we be? Jesus' imminent return, imminent is is a term that just describes the fact that it could happen at any moment. In other words, we sit here this morning and Jesus could come back now. Jesus can come back at any time, and Jesus highlights how true this is in verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. So who knows when Jesus is coming back? No one except God the Father. So clearly the point of this passage isn't for us to be able to finish filling out the rest of our chart in the end times. No one knows when it's going to happen. No one knows, not even Jesus himself. Now, the first time that Jesus came back, everyone who thought he knew, or the first time that Jesus came, everyone who thought he knew when he would come missed him. The best scholars, the best theologians, all studied and looked for the signs and scripture and the stars, and they all missed him. And then it was some ignorant shepherds on a hill who knew very little scripture who actually saw the Messiah come. So whatever we believe about the return of Christ, I think it's instructive to see the first coming of Christ and realize that we should hold very humbly whatever it is that we believe. We just don't know. Now, one temptation when it comes to Jesus coming back is to take the events of our day and hold them up sort of like a lens or a grid over Scripture and use them to interpret God's Word. But what we actually see is it should be the opposite, that we take God's Word and it becomes the lens through which we see what happens around us. God's word becomes the interpretive grid for everything else that happens. You see, in chapter 24, and verses 3 to 8, Jesus made a bunch of predictions that sounded like the world's going to end. But then he says, this is just the beginning. Now, if you were in Jerusalem at AD 70, and you saw the Romans coming in, and they're literally, literally destroying everything, you no doubt think he's coming now. But if you thought that, you would have missed it. The temptation to read our times into the Bible has been present for thousands of years. Some 200 years before the death of Christ, there was a group of people, leaders in in Israel known as the Maccabees. They managed to throw off their oppressors, the Assyrians at the time, and and they started a period of self-rule for a century. For a hundred years, the Jews ruled themselves. But then Rome came in and dominated them again, and then up and down, and then it was in 1948 that Israel again was established as a nation. But do you know If Israel as a nation were blown off the map tomorrow, it wouldn't change one word of what God's word has to say about the return of Christ. Our confidence is in God's word and its predictions, not in what we can see around us. So we can think and we can see and we can observe, but the truth is, verse 42, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. There's a call to alertness and faithfulness because Jesus can return at any time. It's verse 36 and verse 42 that really capture the entirety of Jesus' teaching here. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. A very simple point, but now Jesus embarks on five illustrations that all make the same point. 
Jesus' return can happen anytime, so be ready all the time. Jesus' return is an imminent return. Secondly, it is an illustrated return. He illustrates it five different ways, starting in verse 37. If you were to track back in your Bible all the way to the beginning of the Word of God, Genesis 6 through 9, you'd find the story of Noah. Now, Noah is well known today because of the ark. The ark is a ship that Noah built over a period of decades. You see, God promised to destroy the world, but he also made a way of escape. He commanded his prophet Noah, build this ship, and then anyone who enters the ship will be rescued. And so for 50 to 75 years, Noah worked on this ship, but he wasn't just a builder because 2 Peter 2 verse 5 tells us that Noah is also a preacher, a preacher of righteousness. So for decades as he builds the ship, Noah is also preaching the truth. But what do verses 37, 38, 39 tell us? That as Noah preached the truth, people ignored him. Noah teaches us that ignorance is no excuse. Noah preaches the truth, and yet people ignored the fact that all of this was happening. People are hearing the truth, and what are they doing? They are ignoring the truth. People before the flood are living as if nothing's going to change. They're eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, and living as if it's all going to continue just like it is. So what happens when the flood comes? Verse 38, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. Well, why were people unaware? Because they didn't have the truth or didn't have access to the truth? No, it's because they ignored the truth for more than 50 years. Then verse 37 adds these words, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, people will ignore this truth. Jesus is coming back. Noah teaches us that ignorance is no excuse. A second illustration is in verses 40 and 41. Workers teach us that Jesus' return divides. Jesus' return divides. He uses a couple of quick pictures to help us see how this is true, verses 40 and 41. So a couple of men are in a field, presumably working side by side, talking with one another, and suddenly one is gone. The second picture is of two women working at the mill. Often, a men would go out and work in the field. The women would be working in the home there. And they have a bowl and kind of a hand mill, and they're likely beating the grain, sitting there talking, doing their normal daily tasks. And two women are at the mill, and suddenly one disappears. Jesus' return will mark a clear division between those who know Jesus and those who don't. Now, today, those lines aren't quite so clear. In other words, in every congregation, in every church throughout the world, there are people who know Jesus by faith and those who don't, and we don't have signs that tell us who is who. God's Word gives us avenues to help us figure this out. He says that we can look at the fruit in our lives and at some level know this, but we can't ultimately know, so there's some uncertainty about this today. Well, in the Southeast United States, we live in what we call the Bible Belt, and the Bible Belt has a category of Christians that we sometimes call cultural Christians. They're Christians in culture, but not Christians by faith in Christ. But Jesus says on this day, there will not be any cultural Christians. There will be people who know Jesus and people who don't. It'll be heaven with Jesus or hell without Jesus. Jesus' return divides. Well, then in verses 42 to 44, Jesus gives a third illustration. This illustration is of a thief. This illustration teaches us that Jesus will come when you don't expect. Jesus will come when you don't 
expect. Uh, several years ago, I was working at our church in Greenville. I had gone off, and I'd, I'd met someone for a lunch appointment. Came back to church, middle of the day, uh, bright daylight, well-trafficked area of town. Not too, uh, it's not dissimilar from this. And I, I walked into church. I came out, I don't know, a couple of hours later, and I looked, and uh, I was driving a truck, and the toolbox in my truck was open. And I thought, well, that's weird. I don't, that's never really popped up. By, well, then I got closer to the truck, and I realized it wasn't just open. It had been like, crowbarred open. And so the, the box itself was mangled, and all my tools, several hundred dollars of tools, were gone from the inside of the truck. I looked around. There was no one around. And as I talked to people, I realized at 1.30 in the afternoon or thereabouts, someone had followed me back, broken into my truck, and left. Now, here it is, broad daylight, and suddenly I feel like, what is going on here? I feel a little less safe because someone broke into my life and disrupted it. Well, if I'd known that was happening, like, I'd have stayed there right by my truck, right? I called the police and had him pick him up right when he came and broke into my truck. But I didn't know. And the point is that Jesus tells a story about a thief breaking into the house. Now, if you know your house is going to be broken into, you make sure that doesn't happen. You call the police and you have them waiting there. But the master doesn't know. And we don't know when Jesus is coming back. So, verse 44 says, Be ready at all times, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Because you can't know, because you can't anticipate, you must be ready all the time. Well, then Jesus comes to a fourth illustration. This is an illustration of two servants. This illustration teaches us that Jesus will hold us accountable. Jesus will hold us accountable. So we start with Noah. Ignorance is no excuse. We come to the fourth illustration and we see that Jesus will hold us accountable. Uh, when I was a kid, as, as you know by now, I'm at kind of near the top end. I'm the second born of nine kids. Well, when you're real little, other people watch you. Your parents pay a babysitter or a friend comes or some, someone else watches you. But as you grow older, uh, big kids watch little kids. And so mom and dad go out, I don't know, for a meeting or for a date or something like this, and then it's our responsibility to take care of the house. Now, what this meant was like it, was, it would be the best two hours of my life that week because, you know, mom and dad are gone. So mom and dad are gone, and we're there. And, and what we know in our minds is, okay, so let's say we allow for 15 minutes of drive time there and 15 minutes back. That's 30 minutes. And then let's say it takes them an hour or so to eat. That's another hour. So we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 to 120 minutes of sheer bliss while mom and dad are gone. But there is coming a moment when mom and dad will come home. And that's the moment we've got to be ready for. And so we're walking along, and, and, and the best, now we didn't have, we didn't operate by cell phones then, but the best thing is if somehow we got wind, if there were a call, hey, we're on our way home. Now that may have been to communicate, or it may have been to warn, we're on our way home. So we're spending our time getting ready, but I can remember a few times where, I don't know, we lost track of town, we're going crazy, and you know, the house is a shambles, and suddenly, right down the road, you can see the car coming, and what happens in that moment? Boom! Get ready! Mom and dad are coming, you stuff stuff everywhere to be ready for the moment when they walk in the door. Because we know when they come in, especially I, as the oldest son, you're going to be held accountable for what happens when mom and dad are gone. Well, Jesus closes chapter 24, with a story about two high-ranking servants. The first servant is a faithful servant while his master is gone. He's wise, and he simply does his job. Verse 45, he gives the other servants their food at the proper time. He's not a hero. He literally is just faithful. He, he does what he's supposed to do. The other servant, though, is a wicked servant. And his wicked, wickedness comes out in a couple of ways in verse 
49, laziness and abuse. He eats and drinks with drunkards rather than does the work he's supposed to do. And then because he's lazy, he beats his fellow servants. He's not working faithfully, and so he beats others to make up for his lack of work. Well, why is it that this unfaithful servant acts this way, verse 48 says, because the master is delayed. Now, his instructions are no different from the other servant's instructions. The master's absence is no different. In both cases, the master is gone. His response, though, is quite different. Because the master isn't there with him, watching him right now, he's lazy, abusive. Well, how then does the master respond to these two servants? Well, verse 47 the faithful servant gets promoted. He'll set him over all his house. Verse 51, the wicked servant gets condemned. The master will cut him in pieces, put him with the hypocrites, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse Samuel 15 tells us a story about the first king of Israel, King Saul. King Saul has been commanded by the Lord to go out and destroy a wicked people known as the Amalekites, and they have a very wicked king, Agag. Now, we know from Agag's life that not only was he wicked, he was guilty of infanticide and unimaginable crimes. So the Lord sent Saul to judge this wicked king, and his instructions were to destroy the entire nation, all the livestock, and the king himself. Well, Saul goes out on this mission. The Lord grants him victory in battle. But then Samuel, God's prophet, comes and he, and he checks on Saul and how things going. As he walks up, he hears oxen lowing and he hears sheep bleeding and donkeys braying and he knows Saul didn't obey. He didn't kill all the animals. And he says, what's that sound I hear? And then Saul says, we did what God asked, but we kept the best of the animals and we kept the king alive. Now there was a particular note of pride in this, because if you were a king, you, didn't, you might kill all the people you conquered, but you'd keep the king, because then you could be the king of kings. And so Saul heaps to himself the best of these possessions. He keeps the king alive, but then Samuel condemns Saul, and then he finishes the job that Saul should have completed. First Samuel 15, 33, Samuel said to Agag, this wicked king, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, this is a terribly graphic description of God's judgment on this king. As the prophet grabs a sword and hacks him to pieces. And yet, this is the picture that we have here of the unfaithful servant. The master returns and he's not prepared. The unfaithful servant receives this same condemnation. He's cut in pieces and cast into a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place reserved for God's worst enemies. Now, there's a larger conversation here about the return of Christ, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. But let's take a moment and think about these servants. What does the successful servant do? His job. He's faithful. It's ordinary faithfulness. He doesn't do anything remarkable. He doesn't do anything heroic, and yet when the master turns, he rewards him. And what we see in Scripture is that our faithfulness springs from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for us. Christ has been faithful, fulfilled God's law in our place. We build our lives on the foundation of what Jesus has done, and then we live out our lives in faithfulness to God. His perfect obedience becomes the ground on which we live out our obedience. So we seek to live faithful lives by modeling them according to His Word. 
So this means at one level, following Jesus could mean doing great things for Christ. But it also might look like ordinary obedience today. So, kids, young people, your effort in developing a work ethic matters because Jesus has been faithful. Not because that's how you'll make a lot of money one day, but because Jesus is coming back. We should work hard because Jesus will return and be found faithful today. Now, maybe those days are a distant memory and you're a leader in your place of work or you're a business owner. Well, this servant's unfaithfulness stemmed from the way that he treated those who worked for him, those who worked under him. We should treat employees ethically and with respect because Jesus is coming back. He's going to hold us accountable. This means that pastors and church leaders can't lead for themselves to accumulate followers for themselves or mistreat those under their care. Rather, they should seek to lead humbly and sacrificially like Jesus, the good shepherd. Because Hebrews 13, 17 says that he will hold us accountable. We will give an account. You see, ultimately, how we lead a church matters not in its ultimate level because of this relationship, but because of this relationship. Jesus is coming back. And ultimately, it means that every Christian should seek to walk daily with Jesus because this could be the day when he returns. And we aspire to be faithful and walk wisely with Jesus because Jesus will appear. And when he appears, he will hold us accountable. Well, this brings us to Jesus' fifth and final illustration in chapter 25. And this illustration is the longest. We'll read starting in chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came out, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, every culture has its wedding customs. If you were to ask in our culture, I mean, aside from the vows, the actual getting married, what's the kind of the main event in a wedding? Typically, people would think of the bridal processional. The moment when a bride comes down the aisle, wherever that is, and there's some sort of music playing, and then the groom is waiting, and they're joined together in marriage. That's the big event, the bridal processional. But in the first century, it was the opposite. It was the groom's processional. And so on this day, what Jesus is describing is a first century uh, Jewish custom. 
often the couple getting married lived in the same town. You know, they, we weren't, they weren't quite as much a commuter culture and traveling quite as much as we are today. And so often you'd marry someone right from your backyard there, maybe across town. And so you'd have the groom's family in town and you'd have the bride's family in town. The bride would be preparing herself, getting herself ready, and, uh, and the groom is also getting ready. Well, the bridal party is waiting for the groom to come. This groom, I don't know if he's a little bit of a, I don't know if he's like a little bit into himself, but he takes a long time to get ready and, and go see his bride. And so what would happen is they, they would go from the groom's house over to the bride's house. They'd have some formal ceremonies there and for her family. Then they would trek back through town, back to the groom's house where the reception would start. And this party would last for days, possibly weeks, if it were a really, really good party. And so over in the bride's house, the bride's waiting, as are her bridesmaids. And so as the bridesmaids wait, the, the groom takes a long time getting there. They're going to leave the house, and by this time it's going to be the middle of the night. It's dark, and so they have torches with them. These torches are likely long sticks with cloth wrapped around the top of the stick, and the cloth itself didn't burn well. But you dip that cloth in oil, and then the oil would burn. And so really you need the oil to burn and, and, and light your way through town. And as, as they would march through town, these brightly lit torches made a glorious display and kind of made a show of the wedding. Well, they're chanting bridesmaids. It's a pretty big, pretty big bridal party, and they're all waiting there. Now, half of them have planned ahead, and half of them have not. But when the groom comes, what, what we see here is that it's at midnight. It's a word that literally means in the middle of the night, everyone is asleep. Now, the thing that differentiates the bridesmaids is not whether they're awake or asleep, which is ironic because Jesus has already said, stay awake, but everyone's fallen asleep. But the groom shows up, and what is it that divides the, the wise and the foolish bridesmaids? It's their preparation for this moment. You see, some have recognized, man, it's a Jewish party. We have no idea how long it's going to last, so we're going to take some extra oil. The others didn't plan ahead, and so they asked to borrow oil, but, but the wise bridesmaids don't have enough to share, and so the foolish bridesmaids run to the store to buy some more, but by the time they get back, the groom has already showed up, and they've trekked back to the groom's house. So when the bridesmaids show up back at the groom's house, the door is shut, and they knock and say, we're ready, we have our oil, let us come in, and the groom says, I don't know you you can't come in. You can imagine this is an awkward moment as half of the bridal party is kept out of the wedding. We're 10 for 10. All fell asleep. All were drowsy and slept, but five of them were ready for this moment. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't assign blame for falling asleep, but he does assign responsibility for their preparation. Matthew chapter 7, you may remember Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In that day, Jesus says, at the end of all things, there will be a group of people who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Well, now listen to the conversation between the bridesmaids here and the groom. Verse 11, afterward, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I don't know you. So the bridesmaids won in. Presumably, they could be allowed in, but the groom won't let them in after the door is shut. So we move from this period of open invitation. Come, everyone come to the wedding to a moment when they aren't allowed. It's too late. This is about timing. 
2 Corinthians 6.2 tells us that today is the day of salvation. But there is coming a day of judgment. If you don't meet Jesus by faith today, you will meet him in judgment on that day. There's this great contrast between the foolish and wise bridesmaids. The wise are prepared while the foolish are unprepared. I mean, Jesus, he tells us all of these stories and he could have made his point in one sentence as he does in verse 32. Stay awake for you don't know when your Lord is coming. So why in the world would Jesus take something simple? It's not hard to figure out. Jesus could come anytime, so be ready all the time. Very simple. Why did he tell us five stories of increasing length to make the same point? It's because we're just like these bridesmaids. When was the last time you lived a single day as if Jesus could return that day? When was the last time you lived an hour as if Jesus could return that hour? I mean, people spend hours and hours thinking about their clients, how they can serve their clients, how they can better reach their customers, how they can strategize and grow their business. People spend hours and weeks and months thinking about elections, things they can affect only at a small level. Or people think, spend their lives planning about their kids, how they can give their kids' lives, the best life pos- kids the best life possible. Or, or where the kids will go to school. They take trips and plan and prepare. Or churches spend time thinking about decorations for Christmas and Easter. Or we prepare, how can we fight a virus that might come? Or spend more time preparing for an active shooter situation than for the truth, the reality is that Jesus is coming back. And we spend so little of our time, thought, and energy preparing for that certainty. We prepare for so many uncertainties, for so many potential hypothetical events. We're walking around with no oil for our lamp, thinking there's plenty of time when we just don't know. That's the point. The point is Jesus knows we're just like these bridesmaids. We're no different than the people in Noah's day, walking around, eating, drinking, marrying, as if it's all going to go on like this forever, and Jesus says it's not. So, it's so, so if it's so important that we be ready, why does God wait? Why does he give us this opportunity to be complacent? Why doesn't Jesus just come back and do it now? Romans 2 verse 4 says, it, it gives us the answer. Paul writes, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Jesus hasn't come back because today is the day of salvation. Whereas 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise, but he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus hasn't come because there's still an opportunity to trust him. God is still calling people from the nations for the sake of his name. Perhaps this morning God's spirit is calling your name. Perhaps you're not familiar with this gospel story at all, the fact that Jesus, God's Son, came to earth as a human being to die in the place of sinners so that whoever would trust in him could have eternal life. Or perhaps it's a story that's so familiar to you, your mind almost turns off the minute you hear it because you've heard it your entire life. But it's one thing to know that Jesus died to save sinners. It's another thing to know that Jesus died to save you. 
And brothers, sisters, friends, God loves you and sent his son to die so that you might have life through him. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus? Today is the day of salvation. But what about us? What if we do know Jesus? What does it look like to be alert and looking for Jesus to return today? It means we spend our lives looking to Jesus. It means that when it's Wednesday afternoon and there's no one else around but us and our phone, that we live as if Jesus is coming back and we're accountable to him. It means that we're gossiping about our friend. We remember Jesus is coming back. It means that when it's dark and rainy on Tuesday morning, and we're locked in a battle inside our head, fighting with anxiety and despair, we remember Jesus is coming back. And on that day, all of God's enemies will run, even the enemies that live inside our heads. Fear, anxiety, depression will run the other way when the King of Kings comes back. Brothers and sisters, Jesus could return any time. So we must be ready all the time. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. Remember Paul's words in Colossians 3, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to the Lord now.